This episode is part of the Business 101 series, featuring faculty and collaborators of Lundquist College of Business at the University oh, of Oregon. We just go that much farther, and we could take, you know, the state of Oregon or the companies here, we could take all those savings and build a train that would get me in one hour from Eugene to Portland or something. We would have extra money to spend on yeah. stuff. And how cool would that be? So it's how really cool. first order to know. Welcome to 101, the podcast with a quest to know and enjoy the 101 of everything. Each episode, we talk with one professor and dive into their 101 class, starting with the basics and moving beyond into stories and cutting-edge research, always seeing how each topic matters so much for our lives. I'm your host, Troy Campbell, an assistant professor here at the University of Oregon, and today we dive into the 101 of finance. Our professor today is Al Sheen, a finance professor who's an expert in private equity, mergers, and finance in general. Al Sheen is a mix of the modern professor with the classic Socratic method professor. As he walks his class through topics, not by answering questions, but by getting them to ask the right questions. And he even finds a way to ask me a couple questions on the podcast. He's a man that grew up in the financial Wall Street world, but discovered that academia was a better fit for his heart and desires. Today, the pod begins with the metaphor of finance being like a grocery store, which is a wonderful example to understand what finance is without placing a value judgment on it. We get into counterintuitive facts, the trade-off around many items, including big private equity buyouts, and get into more cutting-edge research. There's a calm, inquisitive joy to Al, as he has this air of being businessy and relaxed at the same time, from his lectures, to his clothes, to the way he always stands or even sits during this podcast. Also on the pod today, editor Alec delivers great practical financial advice, and the drinks after class are replaced from the normal with an extended discussion of business academia with Al and I. Feel free to skip that if you want. So let's get going and dive into the 101 of finance with Professor Al Sheen. Hello, and I'm here with Professor Al Sheen. And let's just get started. What is finance and why is it important for us to know? Finance is what we use to figure out if those things are good ideas to do. Like, you know, I decide, gosh, I want to come up with a new brand of ketchup and sell it. We use tools in finance to determine whether or not it makes sense to spend our limited amount of money to go and do a project like that. It's not just companies. So people need money too, right? You decide you want to buy a car or you want to go to college and you need tuition. Well, it takes money to do that. And finance is the process by which we can figure out how to get you that money and whether it's a good idea for you to use that money to do what you want with it. So explaining finance in the past, I've seen you use this metaphor of grocery stores to explain really what's going Mm -hmm. on and the function of the financial system. There are people in this world, well, actually everybody, who wants to eat food, right? People, there are people who want food and there are people on this planet, much fewer who make food, right? You've got farmers, you've got people who, you know, raise livestock, bakers, things like that. Now, imagine if you lived in a world with no supermarkets or even restaurants or anything like that. How would you eat, 
right? You would basically have to either grow your own food, everyone would have to do that, or you would have to live near a farm. So what supermarkets do is they serve as a marketplace where they collect all the different foods from the farmers and even people internationally. They put it all in one place. You, you go to Whole Foods, you can get like whatever cheese you want or anything you want on the planet pretty much. And it's a one and they're all over the place. And if you want food, you can just go directly to the supermarket and get everything you need. That's essentially what the financial system does. That's the point of banks. If you think of banks, you know, a lot of people say banks are so rich, they have all this money. Banks don't have any money whatsoever. They don't have any of their own money. All the money that's in a bank basically comes from people like you and me giving it to them, right? They just have deposits. It, they're not rich themselves. They're taking our money and collecting it and doling it out to people who want a loan to go to school or to buy a house or to buy a car or to a business that needs money to open up a restaurant or to start a factory or something like that. Yeah, and so we've got a bank, which is like a grocery store, which is when I need money, which I'm sometimes going to need, just like sometimes I need to buy a bunch of food to eat, I'm going to need money to buy resources. And sometimes people will make mistakes and they'll go get too much money that they then they should have. And sometimes people make mistakes and go get too much food. I mean, supermarkets sell food that's bad for you if you're not careful. Uh, maybe some are more expensive. Maybe they charge more than they should. There's a lot of problems with it. But the fundamental existence of a yeah. supermarket, you can't argue with that. Yeah. Like we need that. Since this is Finance 101, let's talk about two of the most generic pieces of financial advice and explain them in a more understandable and positive way. Number one, they say interest is the worst thing ever. The negative thing you've heard, avoid debt because of compound interest that if you had $1,000 debt at 15%, a very common credit card interest rate, your debt will double to be $2,000 in just five years. A better and more positive way to understand this is, Paying down debt is the best investment you can make. There is no other investment out there that can guarantee you a 15% return on your investment. They say interest is the worst thing ever, but really paying and avoiding debt is the best thing ever and it is almost unquestionably the best investment you can ever make. Young people often worry about not investing because they don't have a big stock portfolio or house. But don't worry, if you are staying out of debt or paying down your debt, you are with few exceptions making the best investments. You're doing good. And number two is, they say don't live without a safety net. The negative way you've heard this is, make sure you have a financial net, make sure you have a financial net so when you inevitably crash, you can have a pillow to fall on. This metaphor is sad because it says that if you fall, you'll be caught, but you'll still be at the bottom. And lots of people see this advice and respond to it by resisting and saying, well, go big or go home, right? What's the point of a safety net if it's just comfortable to be on the bottom? A better and more positive way to understand this is, don't live without a safety trampoline. In the circus, when acrobats try the craziest tricks, they sometimes miss and they fall on a net. But then it is more like a trampoline that launches them back up to the top. So think of it as building a financial trampoline so that when you do fall, for instance, you lose your job or a principal investment goes wrong, you have the time and financial resources to launch yourself back up to the top. You'll have time to take a break, look for a job, make a pivot, instead of scrambling to make any paycheck. They say don't live without a safety net, but really build yourself a safety trampoline. All right, back to the podcast. So hopefully you understand a bit of Finance 101 advice with a better and more positive outlook. 
Yeah, that's, that's such a good example. Like there are bad loans out there, just like there are bad foods for you. And so let's 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 break this down before we sort of dive into your class, which is let's explain sort of how banks make money, sort of what a bank is. And, and so let's just take that example of you said that banks have our money, mm-hmm. and how are they how are they making money with our money? Right. Okay. So it's actually very simple. They begin by collecting our money. So we go, so money that we're not spending at this particular moment in time, we want to keep it safe. And we actually want to make money on our money, but I'll get to that in a second. So you take your extra leftover money, you give it to the bank, and they're holding on to it. All right. They collect money. Then they then dole that money out to somebody else who needs it, like we said, for a car loan, for uh, to buy a house, or to start a business. So a couple people who have money have given money to the bank, and mm-hmm. some people who don't have as much money want a loan, and right. the bank is loaning our money to them. Exactly. And of course, when you make that loan, as you, if you've ever done this, you probably realize that you don't just pay back the amount of the loan, you pay back some interest. So if you want to take some of our, if you want to buy a house and you want some of my money to do it, you can get it from the bank. But if you borrow 100, you have to end up paying back maybe say 105 or 110 or 103, whatever the interest rate is. Yeah. Okay. So the bank with that extra $5 now, they keep one or two for themselves and pass the remaining three or four back to us. So we get some extra. The bank, as the middleman, they get their little cut, which seems reasonable because they are, A, collecting our money and keeping it safe. They're also doing the job of figuring out who needs the money. You know, they're spending a lot of time, and that's how they make their money. They take the little cut that's a difference. Yeah, and we can get into it towards the how does finance help our our lives better towards the end, which is that there are sometimes ways that banks make more money money that is, in a way, nefarious might be a harsh word for it, but they they have a lot of fees and other things, and that's sometimes how they're making money from ATM withdrawals or using not or overusing uh, 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 an item. But in the idealized system, the idealized financial system can work By the way, I mean, every, well. what you just said replies to every business. If you yeah. buy a car, there's fees. If you go and buy you know, clothing, they might tack on some shipping fees. Any business you... Uh, transact with is going to try to squeeze some extra money from you. That's just what they do. Yeah. So banks are no different. Finance yeah. is no different. So I think you've already sort of showed why the answer to this question is no, but sort of an elephant on the forehead question people have about finance is, isn't finance just for people who love math and have lots of money? You know, you could argue if you ha- the less money you have, the more important it is to understand how to spend it wisely. If you're rich, you can kind of screw up and you'll probably still be okay, to be honest. So um, I don't see how, how much money you have really makes that much of a difference. And for good at math, I don't see how being good or bad has anything to do with it. I mean, if you're, that's like kind of like saying that or medicine is only important if you're good at biology, right? Even if you're not good at science, you still care about whether you get sick. Yeah. So even if you're bad at math, and there's not, to be honest, there's not a lot of math. And I think there's this impression that there's lots of equations and fancy things in finance. There really isn't. It's yeah. just plus, minus, multiply, and a little bit yeah. of divide. And, and, under, and understanding how to evaluate things is not always a math 
proportion. It's much more difficult conceptually than it is mathematically. People always come in thinking, do I need a special calculator or do I need calculus or any of that kind of stuff? Honestly, not at all. You just have to know you could basic, like I said, a plus, minus, multiply, divide. That's all you really need. Yeah. And, and if we're working for certain companies, we're going to need to know derivatives and other things like that at certain situations. But that's very few people are going to yeah. be doing things like that. Yeah. That's 99% of I spent, what, like six, seven years on Wall Street and things like I never used calculus. Not that I'm poo-pooing math or anything like yeah. that. But it's the, the concepts, the, the judgment that you need becomes, I think, much more important than how good you are with a calculator or anything. Yeah. Um, so you worked within Wall Street for a while and you made your way back into academia. W what's that story? Why come back into the doors of academia? It was an econ major. I went off and worked for a pretty long time. I started off in something called management consulting for a couple of years. And when you started off, you started off, is that McKinsey? Yeah. So you're that you're that, to some degree, that classic, get the job out of, at McKinsey out of undergrad, uh -huh. and you're on your way, right? Yeah. Your story seems to be set already. You do that for a couple of years. You go off to B school. You become a CEO something a couple yeah. years down the line. That's a fairly typical path going into that business world. But I decided I wanted something to try to get into something that was maybe a little bit more quantity, I suppose. I wanted to just try something different. And so I moved from consulting. I said, let's try finance. I don't know much about it, but let's give it a shot. And so I moved to New York and I started working at something called a hedge fund for a year or two. And then I moved on to another, what's called an asset management firm, basically stock pickers. My job was to, people would give our firm money and they wanted us to pick stocks for them, hoping they would go up so they could make more money. So these are, you know, just regular people who are investing in mutual funds. And I covered mostly the automotive industry and I was picking stocks. I was traveling to Turkey and India, deciding if we should buy this motorcycle company, stuff like that. I did that for about five years or so. And at that point, I just, why did I go into academia at that point? I would say there'd be two main reasons. First, it was just kind of a nice break. And there's something that always attracted me about being an academic and going to grad school. You kind of set your own hours. You aren't wearing a suit every day. Yeah. So, but it's, I mean, the job of, of course, of just being a professor, you get to, the stuff you work on is completely whatever comes out of your own head. Nobody tells you what to do. And it was, I always thought it was kind of fun standing up in front of a room full of people and trying to explain things to them. So the job itself seemed kind of appealing. So that was one reason I did it. But then also doing a PhD in finance, having, after having worked in the field for a while, to be honest, a lot of it was just once you start doing finance in the real world, you start, if you're of this type, you might start to question some of the things you do. Like, you know, we had all these rules of thumb for, oh, when you value this company, you should do this afterwards, or you should look at it this way. And to be honest, there was never really a great explanation for why we did things the way we did. And it just always kind of bugged me. And so I thought, hey, I can take a nice long sabbatical, go to grad school, try to figure out the answers to these questions. Afterwards, with a PhD in finance, I can either go back and keep doing what I was doing, or I can try this whole academic lifestyle thing, which is the direction I ended up going. And so it was just sort of a free option. Yeah. Um, so let's get into it. 
Let us dive into Finance 101 with Al. What's your class like? My goal, what I've done the last few years, by the end of this class, I would say it's sort of a broad overview of the purpose of finance, and we cover lots of different topics, like lots of words you may have heard of, like stocks and bonds and interest rates. Um, Yeah, I think it's really fun for people in their first finance class. They they feel as if it's something they're going to dread, but like the people I think even listening to this podcast right now, you're like, oh, I'm familiar with all these things. I've seen these things. I've heard these things. And every single lecture is touching something that I'm already actually very familiar with. I now know a little bit more, okay, that is exactly why a bond is different from a stock. And so getting into sort of the style of your classes, from knowing your class and hearing what everybody said about it, it's, it sort of fits this wonderful classic sort of academic tradition of that lecture style, that almost classic, but mixed with your, you know, modern day Al and his cool clothes. And uh, one of my favorite quotes about your class is, uh, the tests are hard, so make sure to study, period, followed by would highly recommend. Um, and then throughout it, it has, you know, great examples, everything's straightforward. But I love your classes, sort of this like very classic example of this is the hard, straightforward class to go into. One thing I try to do, especially since this is a 101 class, and not everybody here is a finance major. You're business majors, but yeah. you're not necessarily going to take more finance classes. And I think it's important to, to, in order to teach that, is you have to, I think the tough thing that a lot of professors have is, because um, professors are generally pretty smart. They have PhDs. They've been doing this their whole lives. And it it can be really difficult to put yourself in the mind of an undergraduate student who has never seen this stuff before, never heard these words. And so... And, it can, and, and to some degree, for some people, it actually can be kind of boring. Um, and I think that that's why sometimes you see in certain academic settings, people like, they're like, I don't want to teach the 101 stuff. I want to talk about the complicated things. I want to talk about the meaning of life, not how to write a sentence in like an intro class. And it just goes wrong. Yeah, I prefer, well, I've mainly done intro, so I haven't done a lot of advanced classes, but I feel like I prefer the intros because I like getting re- the the challenge of really not dumbing down, but really um, not assuming people know anything. So what I, one thing I, I pride myself in, I don't know how well I accomplished this, but it's something I really try to do is to not lose anybody. Like I... That's a great Play principle. dumb a lot. Like, I don't pretend you know what a stock is. If anybody says a word in class like bonds, I'm like, I honestly, we haven't learned that. I have no clue what that is. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, actually, that I remember uh, I've gotten feedback before where um, if I look back at my course evaluations, I've repeatedly gotten this comment where, you know, Al, we, we liked Al as a professor. To be honest, at the start, we weren't sure if he really knew what he was doing because he we kept mentioning – people would mention things and he would just not know what they were or he wouldn't acknowledge it. He was like, I've never heard of that. Can we talk about that later? Later on, we realized he actually did know, but he – purposely pretended not to know things that we hadn't covered yet so that we wouldn't lose people and get all into the jargon and things like that. So I I don't think anybody has ever complained that 
a class was too easy to understand or I had too little trouble following what he was saying. And so you can never go wrong in that direction. So in your class, you're learning about how to understand the financial system and things about companies. But I imagine that there's a lot of takeaways for the individual as well and what they can do in their own personal finances. A big part of sort of personal finance, and we spend you know, one or two classes on what I'll call behavioral issues that come up. So in other words, mistakes that people make, mental mistakes. Well, one thing is, you know, there's been research on um, as far as when it comes to picking stocks and investments, who's better at doing this? Is it men or is it women? What do you think? I will provide no answer so people can make no inference about my character. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You know, I asked that in class and most people say women just because it kind of feels like that's, you know, the more PC or that's the yeah. answer. But it turns out that, well, before I give you the answer, um, so we learn about how when we as just individuals go to pick stocks, we tend to be really, really bad at it. Yeah. And um, as a result, women tend to make more money when they invest. But, you know, if we're bad at it, why would that be? Why wouldn't we both be equally bad, men and women? And the reason is because um, even though we're all equally bad, men are just less likely to believe that. They're a little bit more overconfident. Yeah. And so they kind of shoot. We all shoot ourselves in the foot when we try to do this stuff ourselves, but men just shoot more often. And so the it's like one of these many, I, I like using sometimes gender or social group differences as you know, the difference is not that inherently one group is this way, but this group has this tendency. And really what this lesson that you're giving about isn't really about gender. It's about overconfidence. Yeah. And that we're overconfident, um, or at least a lot of the people who are investing are overconfident of their ability to outsmart the market. So we talk about ways in which you can, you know, if you're aware of these tendencies, how you can overcome them and what's the best way. Ultimately, what can you do to make sure you save as much money as possible, have as much money to live on um, over the rest of, you know, over the course of your life? And there's lots of research that's been done on this, and I try to present a lot of this and, you know, hopefully help you, you know, have more money and make better decisions as you um, go into the future. You know, a lot of finance isn't that complicated, but there are a lot of terms and there is a lot that can get tricky. And... One thing and, there, that, and there are a lot of things to realize, like you realize that maybe you're overconfident or mm -hmm. you realize other biases. You have like status quo bias and, you know, what I'm doing right now, you just have the status quo to keep continuing. So you keep continuing in these, you know, purchasing habits that we have. And so over in, you know, very, consumer psychology and behavioral finance, um, my topic and your topic here you're talking about are, are overlapping greatly. And, you know, some people just have biases. Finance, I wouldn't... It, it, maybe is not quite as complicated as medicine or law. But th the thing is, if you have a medical problem, you know to go see a doctor or a nurse. Yeah. If you have a legal problem, you go see a lawyer. I mean, there are financial planners and things like that. But most people, when it comes to finances and investment and you know managing your money, which can have a huge impact on your life, you're kind of doing it on your own. Yeah. And so it just, it's a weird thing where it's I w it's not super complicated, but it's not something you just know naturally, and yet you're expected to figure this out on your own. And that can be tough. Yeah. So 
I guess what people can do is become more educated and if they can find people to trust about these decisions. Now, the problem is there's a lot of people out there who either are untrustworthy because of their character or because they have a good character, so they're good in their moral qualities, but they're overconfident, like the the average of men in that mm-hmm. study. Well, yeah. I think, to be honest, there's good internet resources these days where you can just look for tips on like personal finance. To be honest, I think we've sort of coalesced on, in general, what some of the right moves are. You know, diversify. You've probably heard some of these things before. Diversify, start early, try to put in some savings, try not to rack up a bunch of debt. A lot of the and avoid the, fees when you can. Yeah, that's a big one. Like avoid, you know, watch out all the fees you're paying. Try not to, um, you know, you've probably heard the, there's words called like index funds and ETFs. You may not know what all these things are now, but I would say the general advice that's available out there is kind of consistent right now. So it's not like you're wading out into a world where, like. There's 10 different things being said, and I don't know who to listen to. To be honest, most of what you read and hear is kind of similar. So now is a good time to dip back into some specific financial advice. And this time, let us look at three more very common pieces of financial advice. These are pieces that we often hear, but we really don't realize what they actually mean. So first, they say that employee benefits are one of your most underutilized assets. We often hear this as only meaning financial investment, like a 401k or a matching fund. But really, many companies have so many other benefits from free transportation, cheap tickets, car usage, counseling of all types, daycare or daycare discounts, and so many other things to maximize life. Second, they say limit how many credit cards you have. And we often hear this as only advice for people who don't have the money to pay their bills back quickly. And we think, well, that's not advice for me. But really, having few credit cards is about reducing stress and reducing room for error. It's really hard to manage so many accounts, even with the money. Plus, remember many credit card companies aren't always really looking out for you. They may be trying to trick you. So even if you have the funds or have some sweet future earnings coming in, limiting your credit cards limits your risk. Third, they say, save money. We often hear this as only about a fancy car or really expensive clothes. But really, it's often the little things that add up quickly. As host Troy likes to say, for many people, it is not death by sports car, but death by a thousand lattes. For instance, if you spend $5 on a personal latte most days of the year, that's about $1,500 a year, which is about 2 to 4% of the median pre-tax annual income. Let me say that again. It is very easy to spend 2% of your pre-tax annual income on lattes, or something else very small. Oftentimes we hear financial 101 advice, but we really aren't hearing what that advice means and why it's actually important for each of us. Now, back to the conversation. So you just have to tap into that. So let's go to to a couple of those points right there, which is the things that people have heard a million times. Let's just be really clear on what those are. So let's do two of them. One is diversify and the other is avoid fees. So imagine I want to invest in some things. I'm engaging in personal finance where I'm giving my money to some people else because I expect a return. Diversify and avoid fees. What specifically are those? Well, uh, so diversifying means, you know, not putting all your eggs in one basket. And so if you have, you know, a pot of money that is just sitting there and you want it to grow and, you know, maybe eventually into a down payment or for your retirement, 
An example of not diversifying would be putting all that money into just one company. Like, I don't know, pick your favorite company. Who knows? Any company could go bankrupt or it could go down or something like that. So you don't want to... So the way to diversify is to at least spread your money out. Um, one of the most popular ways is what's called a mutual fund or an index fund or something like that, which buys 20, 30, 50, 500 different stocks so that if one goes up, maybe that's balanced out by one going down or if, you know, nothing will... You get a smoother path that way. You don't have to worry about losing all your money. Okay? It's actually pretty simple to diversify today. And you're diversifying by... Some ways are buying a mutual fund, which has a lot of things, and mm -hmm. then buying different mutual funds. So I'm going to buy a mutual fund of the top stocks in America, and I might have a mutual fund of emerging markets, and I'll have a mutual fund of small mutual fund of some foreign markets. As long as you're not putting all your money into like one guy's investment or one building or one company, mm -hmm. spread it out a little bit, I think you'll be okay. Fees... Again, it depends a little bit on where you are, what stage you are in life. So fees are interesting in that you don't really notice it up front. So there are some funds, there are some investments you can make. Like maybe there's two investments you can make that seem pretty similar. One charges you a little bit higher fee than another one. Say one charges you, it takes out 1% of your money every year, and the other one only takes out maybe one-tenth of one percent of your money. So these mm -hmm. seem like really small numbers, but if you stay with them over the course of 20, 30, 40 years, it can result in you having as much as you know a third, half, twice as much money if you are able to avoid the fees. Um, they're purposely small and they're purposely kind of not noticeable, but you just want to be careful about that. And this isn't as relevant for someone who's maybe just starting off and doesn't have that much money. You're probably not going to notice it that much. But once you get into the long term, if you're investing for in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you want to be careful about that. And um, you probably don't have time to talk all about that, but just keep in mind fees bad yeah. and research that and make sure you're not paying a bunch of money to someone that's you and, don't need um, to be doing. And if you have a certain um, uh, group that you're a bank or something like that, so say you're working with Fidelity, I think another just great thing to do is just anytime you have a question, call them. And I think that one of the things that people don't do is they don't just literally ask the million questions that they have and get the answers. Now, some there are some companies out there that are, are going to you know, try to push you around or do something. But there are so many opportunities of so many good companies, if you can find them, or banks, where you can just sit and ask them questions over and over because it is a free part of the service that they provide. Mm -hmm. and then you can learn a little bit more. One other thing I would just point out is that old adage of if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. That happens more in finance and investments than in almost anything else. Yeah. So I can't tell you the number of times. Like if you go to the bank right now and you deposit some money, they'll pay you interest ranges from you know maybe 0.2 to maybe 1.2, 1.5%. But if someone comes to you or if there's an investment that says, I'm going to give you a guaranteed 5% or 10% and every other bank in the world, you're your next best alternative is to only get 1%, then don't do it, yeah. okay? We or live do in a ton of research. We live in a world where, especially in finance, people 
always want to believe they've got the next hot tip or I've got a great investment that I want to jump on this. 99 time, 999 times out of 1,000, it ain't the real thing. And so uh, one example, I think, in there is car loans. So you hear all the time on the radio, mm-hmm. you know, if you're making this much money a week, then you're approved. I know nobody uh-huh. else wants to get you in a car, but we do. Yeah, the whole car loan thing, that entire business is about taking advantage of people who are sort of month to month. And so yeah. those ads are all about how low can my payment be? Yeah. And so... You know, you could go to one, you know, maybe one guy is offering you 500, you know, a payment of 500 a month. And this, you hear this ad saying, oh, we're going to knock it down to 200 a month. And you don't have to pay for the first six months. And you don't have to pay for six months. But guess what? You're going to be paying 200 a month for the next 47 years, whereas you were paying 500 for, they, they're famous for taking advantage of people's day-to-day, month-to-month living. Yeah. And you're not realizing how much trouble you're going to be in on the back end of that. So, yeah, car examples are great. I mean, just ask yourself, seriously. I mean, if this place is the only one that makes wants to make you a loan and wants you to pay less money than any other place, there's only two possibilities. One is that they, this dealership, for some reason, really likes you and really wants to help you out. Mm-hmm. Or there's something that you're not aware of where they're going to make money off you. So how do you bring research into the classroom and what is your research? Lately, what I've been studying is what are called private equity firms. Have you you ever heard of private equity or private equity firms? Yes, I've heard it. And and with lots of other things that you've said, you don't always have the best feeling about these words that you're hearing. Okay, so you have... You would say maybe negative would be your initial... From a psychology perspective, I imagine there's an unconscious negative feeling that I feel uh-huh. every single time I hear of big private equity with their massive amounts of money yeah. deciding to that's right. invest in places okay. of their choosing. I mean, equity, you know, that's a financy word, private Doesn't equity, seem too what are equitable. they hiding? And so in this situation, what the private equity firm is a place where people have invested in the private equity firm who is then going to invest money. So we've invested in investors. These firms are super greedy and they want to make money. They want to use your money, turn it into much more money, give you a nice profit in return and keep some money for themselves. And I think, you know, they have a negative reputation because you think Wall Street, you think tons of money, you think rich people. And so that's just that's just the name of the game these days for those kinds of places. So the best comparison I can use for a private equity firm is if you've ever seen those shows about house flipping, like on uh-huh. Garden TV or things like that. So you've seen these shows. Uh-huh. All right, so what do house flippers do? They buy houses. Okay. They have, they have, so they have, that they have so tons great. of money. They have tons of money or where do they get the money to buy houses? They, they either have it or they are an agent of a larger body. Okay. So they might be using other people's money to buy houses mm-hmm. or they're taking out a mortgage or something to buy a house. Okay. They bought a house. What do they do now? They usually make the house different um, and usually in a 
better way. Okay, so but what what's the overall broad reason that they're buying a house in the first place? What are they They want to sell. They want to flip it and they want to sell it for more than they purchased it for. So they want to make money. They want to make money. They're greedy. Okay. So they buy a house, they you started saying they try to make it better or Yeah, they they try to make it better for a consumer who okay. will now pay more money for it than they would have in the first place. So private equity firms are house flippers. That is what they do, except replace the word house with company. So that's what they do. Now, the reason private equity has such a negative connotation, I think some of the things I've read is that, oh, it's terrible if private equity buys up a company, they're just going to ruin the company. Or private equity bought um, a company that makes Twinkies. Oh my God, the Twinkies are going to taste terrible now and they're going to ruin Twinkies. Um, they, they're essentially agents of destruction in some way. They're going to fire a bunch of people. All these kinds of things have been said about private equity. So private equity buys something and destroys it. That is one narrative that's out there. So let me ask you this. If you're a house flipper, you buy a house... Would you destroy it? <laughs> Private equity firms are greedy. They want to make money. So let me ask you this. How does it make sense to buy a company and destroy it? Are you going to be able to find somebody to take that off your hands for more than you paid for it? No. I mean, it. it's not... Look, I'm not saying it's not impossible, but... And you're not saying... They, they could make a mistake. So what I've done in my studies is try to look at... What actually happens to companies that private equity firms buy? So what buy? happens when the house flipper actually buys the house? So we did a study. I did a study with a co-author uh, looking at restaurants. Private equity firms love snapping up restaurants. Uh -huh. And so they buy. They own things like P.F. Chang's and Burger King and Checkers. And so we gathered a bunch of data on restaurants that private equity firms bought. And we got health inspection data to go along with it. Uh -huh. And so we could see exactly before and after private equity firms come in, how do they do on their health inspections? And at the thinking at the time was, it would be really cool if we could write a paper that said private equity comes in and the rats follow right after. Yeah. You know, if we found something like that. Do you know how many retweets you would get from a certain type of people in the United I mean, States? You would be their hero. What I had in so, my head. So much motivated confirmation bias would exist. Private there. equity equals food poisoning or something like yeah. that. And we had really good data. We had exactly the date of the inspection. We It happens multiple times a year. We had over 10 years of data. We had 50,000 restaurants that got yeah. inspected. And we ran the numbers, and it went the other way. And so that's just, we just had to report that. Meaning, private equity comes in, and restaurants get cleaner. They have fewer violations, fewer rats in the kitchen, fewer health code mistakes, cleaner, you know, more people are putting their hair in hairnets and stuff like that. Yeah. And so we reported it. A couple of different co-authors and I did a second study on private equity. We looked at basically everything that private equity firms buy that you can find in a supermarket. So if a private equity firm buys up a brand that makes toilet paper, what happens to that toilet paper? What happens to prices, availability, and everything? And what we basically found is that prices didn't, they went up very slightly, maybe like 1% or so. But the most significant result is when private equity buys up something like green beans or something you can get into a supermarket, what you see is an explosion of new products and varieties introduced by mm -hmm. that company. 
and you see that they expand to new stores and new cities. Yeah. That's that's and it's very clear that that's what happens. So again, we're just reporting what we see and you can interpret that however you will, but it seems it like complicates the it, it complicates the story. And I can see people saying like certain things like feeling bad for the person whose favorite coffee shop is no longer like their favorite coffee shop or their brewery is no longer their favorite brewery and now there's more people coming into it and it doesn't have the same exact artistic charm that it has. But then on the other side, I can really understand, well, now this place is available to more people and things like that. And to be fair, let me let me speak to the other side. When they flip these companies, they're, they're doing it with the idea of making things more profitable. Yeah. So you could imagine a case where it had some a company had some niche appeal, some unique yep. niche appeal, and maybe they do kill that and turn it into some mass market thing that some you know bunch of nobodies who don't have any taste are going to spend a lot of money for. So at this point in the podcast, usually we ask two questions, and that's how can understanding this topic here, finance, help us understand the world better? And then we ask how can understanding help you as an individual? But I think in lots of ways, these are intertwined questions in this mm-hmm. situation. So how does, how does understanding finance just in general make potentially the world and people's lives better? I think I said at the beginning, finance is about making smart decisions with limited resources. It's almost too obvious a question. It's about how we're <laughs> to spend money wisely. It applies to you personally. Should you spend your money on you know, buying this car or investing in this education? It applies to governments. You know, We have limited, obviously, government budgets. And so if everyone was really good at finance, if this world could do this very well, we would be efficient spending machines, our dollar would just go that much farther. And we could take, you know, the state of Oregon or the companies here, we could take all those savings and build a train that would get me in one hour from Eugene to Portland or something. We would have extra money to spend on stuff. And how cool would that be? So it's really first order to know how to make investments without wasting money to know what people really want, to know if, uh, yeah, to know for spending money wisely. Today on the 101 of Finance with Al Sheen, we learned that finance is, in short, making smart decisions with our money and limited resources. We learned that finance is often best understood through the metaphor of a grocery store that brings together people who want food and people who make and have the food. And we talked about finance and some of the misconceptions of it, and specifically that it's less about complicated math. And we learned some of the things about personal finance and some of the tips such as you should uh, diversify your investments. You should try not to pay lots of fees. You should watch out if anything seems too good to be true. And we learned about the complications of private equity and that private equity can sometimes be thought of with the metaphor of house flipping. And in general, we learned uh, that finance can do what? Make the world run more smoothly and 
make the world a better place by allowing us to build and invest in things that people really want and think are useful. And that's Finance 101 with Al Sheen, and uh, now we're smarter. Thanks for coming in, Al. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. So instead of some drinks after class for this episode, we're going to have some bonus content. One of the things in this podcast is a backstage view of academia. So in lieu of the conversation Troy and I often have here, here is Al and Troy talking about business research and academia. We could get into some stuff which, you know, sometimes there are these types of teachers that get like amazing teaching reviews because they're like just great performers and they seem smart all the time. And uh, they'll get good teaching reviews just based upon that fact. It's like, oh, he just seems so smart. Mm-hmm. And I'll give him a four or five because I can't not give him a four or five out of five because he's just so brilliant. And I just am always saddened by the way that sort of sometimes the reviews of professors are often not about what students learn or what how good the teachers actually tried to teach them, but sort of just these biases we have about um, teachers and stuff. Now, that's not always the case, but there are there are some things. and. Mm-hmm. You, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not negatively affected. I'm very positively affected by teacher student reviews and stuff. But I, I know that there are so many great professors out there who are negatively affected by this system. They don't realize until like four years down the line yeah. they, I should have, I, yeah. you know, he really taught me a lot or something. Yeah. And one of, one one of my favorite lines that a professor used, he uses it sort of as hyperbole, but he says to his, his students that you aren't my customer, you are my product. And that what I'm trying to do is make you successful when you leave this place. And so you're a great product of the university. I'm not trying to serve mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you as an enjoyable thing in this time. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's, that's a hard thing to get at. And that leads to the problems of consumer hmm. culture, of, of colleges and stuff where students, you know, can actually pick their classes. And if they're like their 8 a.m. class and they're like, this isn't an easy class or this professor doesn't have things where we sing raps and do fun things mm-hmm. in class, then I'm just not going to go to it. And it causes uh, bunches of problems. You know, I, yeah, I guess I'm telling people how old I am, but I wonder if that happens more now because now you've got like websites and I don't know, rating systems or internet or whatever. And I, when I was picking classes, we didn't have all this stuff. And I, whenever I would walk into a class, I, all I, I didn't even know their first name. I just yeah. read it out of the course book and it was like P Smith. And I, I kind of went in blind. And so these days they have a lot more, I guess what you would call consumer choice and these yeah. things become more important. Yeah. And some things are so much better because of more information and some things are just not. And if if we were all perfectly sort of rational, then of course more information would help. But, you know, reviews of things are such weak signals and it can have certain mm-hmm. very strong systematic biases ranging from people's preferences to people's you know, ranging into racial prejudices and stuff like that, um, ranging into prejudices about just what I like in a person versus views on what deserves a good rating versus what actually benefited from me. And yeah, problematic. People aren't always good at valuing things. They're not Mm -hmm. always perfect with stocks. Oh, I made it back to our main topic. To contact 101, hit up our host Troy Campbell directly on Twitter at Troy H. Campbell or email him at troycamp at uoregon.edu. 
At the time of recording, we have not finalized our social media names, so this is our temporary point of contact. We look forward to your thoughts, corrections, ideas for future episodes, or whatever else you'd like to chat with us about. The 101 podcast is produced by faculty and students at the University of Oregon's Lundquist College of Business and by the University of Oregon at large. The views and opinions expressed are those of the production team and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of Oregon. The music of 101 is Open Flames by Blue Dot Sessions and Deviate by Poddington Bear. This has been an episode of 101 from the University of Oregon. Now we're smarter.